0: Welcome to Knights of Roleplay, an adventuring podcast. This is an actual play, Dungeons & Dragons podcast. World are music provided by Kevin MacLeod, Michael Gelfie Studios, Plate Mill Games, and Tabletop Audio. And now, to adventure. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Knights of Roleplay. This is episode number 95, Behind the Screen, Adventure Running. I'm DM Chris, and this episode is a new format that I'm going to use during my next homebrew campaign, which will happen sometime after John's Tomb of Annihilation game. My plan is to do a behind-the-screen, For each episode of my future campaign where I discuss the things I was doing behind the screen during the adventure. Uh, This episode will serve as an introduction to behind the screen. So I'm going to start with a very brief overview of how I prep an adventure. So I write adventures in Google Docs. I start with a quick summary of recent events. Then I write a strong start, something that gives the players an objective, assuming the party is not already on a pretty clear path, in which case I use that as the strong start. I write paragraphs of read-aloud text for places and people the party will most likely encounter, followed by a bulleted list of information that I can pull from during the session as needed. And uh, for encounters, I set them up in d and Beyond, but I don't run them in DD Beyond. I open a monster stat block from the encounter in DD Beyond, and I use Print Screen on my PC's keyboard to copy an image of the web page and paste it into Paint. Then I use Paint, and I cut out just the monster stat block, and I paste it into the end of the Google Doc for the adventure. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to prep, and uh, I know people that have run... The encounters in D Beyond, and that's a great way to do it. Uh, this just is a that was a quick overview of the way that I prep my adventures. Um, maybe I can do another behind the screen or just the tips that have to do with how I construct an adventure. I haven't done any just the tips episodes in a while, but I always could, especially if listeners were interested in that. Uh, so that was an overview of how I prep adventures. Now I'm going to give some examples of what was going on behind the screen during certain adventures from past campaigns. So I'd like to start by talking about a campaign called Points of Light. So this campaign, I actually ran it for two different groups. Uh, The first group was during 4th edition, and the second group was most of the people from the current cast of Knights of Roleplay, which... We did um, the second running of this campaign during 5th edition. So when I was doing 4th edition, I was playing with a group of veteran players. And I had rarely ever actually DM'd. And so then I started my own campaign. And it was really my first full-length campaign that I had ever done where I wanted to have a very complete story from beginning to end. And I actually took some of the adventure um, and I actually copied and pasted it into a document here in front of me so that I can read you what the basic setup of this campaign was. And after I had run this for my, my older friends and veteran players, um, when I had started basically the group that turned into Nights of Roleplay. I had run the Lost Minds of Fandover, which was the very first starter set for 5th edition D&D. Everybody loved it, and I thought, hmm, why don't I take this previous campaign that I ran and run it for these new players? So um, that's how I ran this campaign twice. And I'm going to read to you some of the actual text from um, both both, uh, adventure series, I guess you could say. So here is the very first part that I basically gave to the players, and this is called The Great War. A millennia ago, there was a great war between the gods. Vecna, god of undead, led the evil gods against the good and unaligned gods. Vecna's army was led by Orcus, demon prince of the undead. Ioun, god of knowledge, skill, and prophecy, Foretold the coming war, Ayun marshalled the other gods and appointed Kord, the lord of battle, leader of their armies. The battle raged for two centuries until Ayun's army was defeated. It is thought that the gods cannot be truly destroyed, and those who were defeated lay in slumber, slowly recovering and regaining their strength. The evil gods lost almost their entire army. Only two gods remained in the world, Vecna, still with Orcus at his side, and the Raven Queen, god of death. Orcus, who seeks to claim her throne, is the Raven Queen's immortal enemy. It is not known what has become of her as Orcus rampages across the world with seemingly no opposition. He despises the living and seeks to populate the world with undead. So that was the first thing that I gave to the players. This part is called The World. After the Great War, the undead legions of Orcus spread throughout the world. His minions are almost everywhere. However, there are a handful of places, points of light, where Vecna and Orcus and their minions have not penetrated for centuries. It is believed that they cannot enter these places, Some feel the gods somehow warded them before the end of the Great War when they feared that defeat was inevitable. At the edge of these points of light exists a very distinct separation, often referred to as the Curtain. On one side, the sun shines during the day and bright moonlight blankets the land at night. On the other side is a dark and twisted world infested with undead where the skies are always overcast and the light of day is a dull reflection of its former self. This area is called the black. There is a constant mist on the ground at all times, thin and wispy during the day, and thick and rolling at night. Undead inhabit points of light, but in numbers far less than in the black. The people of the world can pass through the curtain in both directions, and suffer no ill effect. Undead can pass through the curtain into the black, but not the reverse. Most people stay in their point of light. Only the greatest of heroes dare travel through the black. The natural world has been thrown out of balance. In addition to the emergence of the black, the barrier between the planes of existence is said to have weakened. It is believed that there are places where people can travel more easily from one plane to another, and that sometimes portals open randomly and unexpectedly. Some also believe that alternative realities have begun to intersect with our world. Strange aberrations have been seen, and the laws of the natural world seem to occasionally change for no reason. It is said that rituals and divine magics seem to no longer function properly, or at all, in the black. So, again, those two sections, the Great War and the World, I read those sections for both groups, the 4th edition group and the 5th and the, and the edition group. And that was sort of like, you know, part of the primer for the campaign. So I had basically planned out that there was going to come a point when the party was going to be fighting against Orcus and his army of undead. So this was a huge battle. In both groups, in both campaigns... It went for three sessions. I was using uh, maps and uh, miniatures rather than theater of the mind. So we had, you know, I had this really awesome orcus uh, miniature, if you can call it that, because it's pretty big. Uh, And I had, you know, just tons and tons of zombies and skeletons and lots of different um, sort of shambling undead. And essentially, while this fight was going on, I kept filling in the ranks of the undead as they were being destroyed and so like as they would destroy as the party would destroy a bunch of the undead I would move them off to the side and then I think at the beginning of like the turn for the undead I would basically grab a bunch of those minis and just put them at the back of the line and and I and I just kept filling them in because my plan behind the screen was to have John's character who was a gnome cleric named Ratchet. Uh, I knew that he had divine intervention. And while divine intervention, the exact definition of it had to do with um, you know, calling the, 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 the character calling to the God and asking for something. and it gives some examples of like you know, getting the benefits of a certain level spell. And I thought, yeah, that, that's okay, but you know divine intervention in my mind should be something really, really significant. So my plan behind the screen was to keep throwing undead at them and to wear them down until John's character used divine intervention. And if he didn't use it, I was going to basically have him make some kind of like a roll, maybe a saving throw, maybe an intelligence check or something to kind of nudge him in that direction. But as it turned out... Uh, he actually did just get to a point when the party was really desperate, and he decided to use it. And that's what I was planning on behind the screen. So I actually have this um, right in front of me here. I copied and pasted this out of the adventure, and uh, this is from Adventure 28, which was called Orcus. And I had written in the adventure, Divine Intervention, space hyphen space, Allow Ratchet to use Divine Intervention to turn the tide of battle as Fallcrest, that's a town, as Fallcrest's army becomes overwhelmed. So I was completely planning on this, and I wrote the following uh, for when John decided to have Ratchet use Divine Intervention. So this is what I wrote for it, and this is what I told them when he used it. Ratchet calls on Ayun for help. A hole opens in the sky blinding light shines through it. An ancient gold dragon comes through. It flies low toward one end of the battlefield. As it does, you see it has a rider. The dragon turns and flies over the ranks of the undead, exhaling fire as it goes, burning them to cinders in a fiery conflagration. Hundreds upon hundreds of undead are incinerated as it flies over the battle lines. Orcus roars in anger, As the dragon passes not far from you, you see the rider more clearly. The rider is a man in shining plate armor. He has a shield on his back and holds a glowing longsword in his right hand and holds the dragon's saddle with the other. The front of his armor has the symbol of Ayun. He has long, flowing blonde hair. He seems familiar. You suddenly realize it is Tamilar Valdarin, founder of the Lightbringers. The dragon flies to the end of the battlefield and turns around to fly over the remainder of Falcrest's army. As it flies over your location, Tomilar points his sword in your direction. He begins to glow with a brilliant radiance as you feel him use the blessing of the Lightbringers on you. Instead of one person being healed, you are all healed to full health. You also regain all spent temporary hit points. Now, this is interesting because right at this point, I have in parentheses, I have add the following if you deem it necessary. You regain all your spell slots and you regain the use of all spent class features and other spent abilities. So I didn't know how badly beat up they were going to (laughs) be. So so behind the screen, I basically planned for John to have his character use Divine Intervention to have a bunch of the undead be destroyed through this scene that I that I just read to you and to basically restore some or all of their spent resources depending on how badly that they had been basically beat up at that point. So um, there's a little bit more on this after the uh, the part in parentheses that I wrote, which is the following, which is this. Tamalar and the dragon fly back into the hole in the sky and it closes. Orcus roars in anger again. And then I simply have it say continue with the encounter. So that is very much something that I had planned behind the screen like long in advance. And that was basically what I just pulled that right out of the adventure so I could share it with all of you. So that was the second time that I ran that campaign and that was in 2015 for most of the cast. Of nights of roleplay, so I did a another game after that, which was a Sword Coast game, and then I did a game after that, which is um, Innistrad, which is based on the Magic: The Gathering world of Innistrad. And so they were basically going through the story. Because the Innistrad story is is something that I read and I thought was very interesting, and they continued it into Shadows over Innistrad when those sets came out, and I wanted to run them through basically the story of Innistrad as it was, uh, as I, as I had read it. So there was a little bit of railroading there, and I actually asked them at the beginning of the game. I said, "You won't really have as much freedom to kind of go around and do what you want." So. I asked I said would you be okay with that and they said yes they understood that I was trying to tell the story as is and of course there was lots of things that I modified because of the players and their characters but it was it was definitely there were certain things that were going to happen no matter what and you could kind of say that for almost any campaign where you don't want to railroad like all the little small parts that get them to the bigger parts but you know the bigger parts are going to happen generally speaking a certain way so for this Inistra game, I took something out of Adventure Three, which was called the Estwald Murders. And um, there were numerous encounters with werewolves. They had gone to basically help out this this town. And um, my my plan was that they were going to keep having these encounters with werewolves, that were going to wear them down, and eventually they would be helped by the Archangel Avison. So they had already fought two previous encounters with werewolves in the same day. One had a single werewolf, and then the other had four. And I believe that the encounter where Avison was to arrive had six werewolves. So, again, very similar to the fight with Orcus and the undead, my plan was to just wear down the party behind the screen. I was just going to wear them down and wear them down, and send more and more werewolves at them. And the fight would go very badly, um... Uh, So uh, what I'm going to read you right now, this is from the adventure. And I wrote to myself, the fight will go very badly for the Cathars and Inquisitors. All of them will be killed except Greta and the party just before the Archangel Avicen arrives to destroy the remaining werewolves. And uh, I said, make sure there are four werewolves when Avicen arrives. Make the fight seem hopeless. Then read the following. So all of that was in the adventure basically telling myself what you know what i wanted to do what i wanted to happen so um so i said make the fight seem hopeless and read the following so this is what i read to the party as the battle appears to be lost you see a moon silver spear pierce the heart of a werewolf holding the moon silver spear is the archangel Avicen herself with a powerful thrust she pushes her spear through the werewolf's chest cavity out its back, and into another werewolf that was charging from behind the first. She pulls the spear out of the two lifeless bodies as she flies into the air. Another werewolf leaps into the air toward her, but she swings her spear over her head like an axe, splitting the werewolf's head in two. The last werewolf charges in her direction as dawn begins to break over the horizon. The archangel goes into a dive, heading straight toward the werewolf. She uses her moonsilver spear to reflect the dawn's rays into the eyes of the charging werewolf, blinding it for a moment. Before the creature can regain its senses, Avison swings her spear in a wide arc, severing the werewolf's head from its body. There is a moment of silence. Avison hovers gently in the air, silhouetted by the rays from the sunrise. Her great white wings gently sway up and down, holding her aloft. Her long white hair flows gently in the breeze. Her eyes, from corner to corner, are fields of white with no iris or pupil. She flies over to your group and lands. Being in such close proximity to her, you are suddenly overwhelmed by a feeling of awe. It is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. The feeling is almost overwhelming, as if you could burst into tears at any moment. The protector of your world stands before you. She is a weapon against undying darkness, believed to be the source of all protective magic, an archangel so true and so mighty that she can hold back the darkness of Innistrad. She opens her mouth to speak, and as the words leave her lips her tone is soft, but the sound of her voice resonates with divine power that you can feel throughout your entire body, so much so that it startles you. She says, Are you alright? So that's that was what I had planned behind the screen after I basically beat down the party with werewolves. Um so moving forward to the um after the Nastra game, John was nice enough to run Curse of Strad for me because I had never really actually played uh, Ravenloft before. Uh, a friend of mine had run a couple of adventures in it, um, but we didn't get very far. So I had never really got a chance to really be uh, a player and really enjoy uh, the Ravenloft setting. So I, John had run Chris Estrada for me. And then after that, we went into uh, Spacefarers. And so I'm going to give you a couple more examples of things that I did behind the screen, uh, and this time for the Spacefarers campaign. So in Spacefarers uh, number 38, Mad Strax Beyond Jungle Dome, which was a play, if you don't know, on Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, which is a movie, uh, so there was a point when they were trying to get uh, into this magical dome. There was a city inside this magical dome that was populated by yuan and they... Saw parties of yon'ti coming and going, and an opening would appear in this magical dome and allow them through. So they so they basically timed it so they could try to rush through. Um, they were hiding, and they tried to rush through when one of these doors opened, and they managed to get through it. And as they got through it, the, the yon'ti were trying to figure out what was happening, and they knew that somebody was invading their city. So. I improvised a skill challenge, which if you don't know, that's something from fourth edition where you have to get a certain number of successes before a certain number of failures. And the successes and failures are based on making certain um, skill checks and you can use different ones. And usually there are some that you can designate for the skill challenge itself and behind the screen you know what the DCs are when using certain skills, and if somebody wants to use a skill that wasn't specifically listed for the skill challenge, if they can kind of justify it, then, you know, I encourage players to do that, and then you can, again, behind the screen set a DC, uh, depending on how sort of creative um, that they are and how resourceful they are with how they want to use other skill checks. So the thought just occurred to me that, you know, the Yonti were going to be going after them and they're going to be chasing them. And I didn't want to have to have, you know, like a, like a battle map and a grid and have them moving on their turns. And so I said, why don't we just do a skill challenge? And I was really happy about the way that turned out because I totally improvised that in the moment. That was something I did behind the screen, but it was, I guess it was kind of in front of the screen too. And, um, that was, I thought that was an interesting example to bring up for, for you, the listener to hear. And, um, There's another adventure from space that I'm I'm going to give you an example of. Uh, It was episode number 58 um, called Coven. And uh, the adventure ended early. It ended very early and I wanted to have more content. So I essentially asked the group what they wanted to do. And I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to try to improvise more of the adventure based on what they say. And I believe that they kind of gave me some idea and then I think they went to bed and I improvised a dream sequence for Sarah's character, Janie, where Janie, um, she saw herself in the dream. Uh, She killed the crew of their ship, the Star Runner, um, with a wild magic surge because that was part of what she, her character, uh, Sarah's character, Janie, was a wild mage. And in her backstory, she had actually um, killed a bunch of, of people from a wild surge. So she had this dream where something similar happened on the party ship, the Star Runner. And there was an image in the stars of this witch character, Morgantha, who threatened Janie, and then reached down and grabbed her and began to crush her, uh, which caused Janie to wake up screaming. So that, that whole thing was something that I had improvised. And I don't remember the exact details, but there was this ongoing plot with Morgantha. And uh, I think... That Janie had taken one of the pies uh, because Morgantha was from was from uh, Ravenloft and she had these pies and uh, i hope I'm, i 'm hope i 'm remembering that correctly um, I apologize if i 'm not but i 'm pretty sure that 's what it was, and Janie had been under the effects of the pies, um, but re- regardless, I wanted to let you know that behind the screen that adventure ended very early, and I improvised the dream sequence and then uh, the party being concerned for Janie, um, they went to the Elven Forest, and um, I improvised uh, the, the creation of an Elven alchemist named Elon. I hadn't written her out. I, I mean, I didn't have any plans on having an Elven alchemist in the Elven Forest, uh, but there, but there's an area on the Rock of Brawl in the, the Spelljammer setting, which is what Spacefarers was. I was basically using um, the second edition... Spelljammer campaign setting, and I had converted it to 5th edition, because 5th edition Spelljammer hadn't come out yet, and it was actually released four days after we recorded the final episode of Spacefarers. And there is a sort of central location called the Rock of Brawl, which is a city on an asteroid. And on that city, in that on that asteroid, there is a section on the 2nd edition map of the Rock of Brawl that has um, the Elven Forest. So when they went there looking for help for Janie, I just improvised Elon. So that's another example of something I was doing behind the screen. Uh, Let's see. Other examples that I've done during sessions, um, sort of more in like a general sense, not specific examples, but um, from adventures, I mean. But I have done things behind the screen, like I have increased or decreased monster hit points during encounters, that the encounters either turned out to be too easy or too difficult. So, you know, there were times where there were. I wanted the encounter to have a certain kind of effectiveness to it, and they were just beating the crap out of my out of my monsters. So, um, I was increasing hit points in order to make it a, a little more of of a challenge. And there were times when I would increase or, or decrease monster attack bonuses or uh damage for essentially the same reasons for you know the, the party is doing really poorly so i'm gonna lower the monster attack bonuses and damage or the party's doing really well and this encounter shouldn't be a chumpy encounter so i'm going to increase the attack bonuses or the damage and there are there are many many times when i have thrown encounters at the party where it wasn't supposed to be a tough encounter it was supposed to be easy i mean it's my belief and and i I learned this from my friend who I'm very grateful he introduced me to d d and he's an amazing dm and um he one of the things that he taught me is that it is your job as the dm to make the players feel like they're heroes to make to make their characters feel like they' are heroes and that is. Really, it is probably the best advice that I have that I have ever, ever got from anyone in, in 36 years now of me playing d d It's the DM's job to help to collaborate with the players to tell a story wherein the player characters should feel like he- heroes. The, the players should feel like their characters are heroes. And I feel like that is a bit of advice that a lot of Dungeon Masters don't know about. They don't understand it. They don't write adventures based on that. I see a lot of Dungeon Masters who basically want to sort of get get something over on the players. They want to get something over on the characters. And there's this sort of adversarial relationship between the Dungeon Master and the players. And I even heard a player once say something like, uh, I'm sorry, there was a Dungeon Master who said something along the lines of, well, at some point you're just going to have to try to kill your players. And I was like, oh my God, that is not true. That is really not true. So um, please take this advice if you take nothing else from me ever. If you're a dungeon master, you want to try to make the players feel like their characters are heroes. And part of the way that I would do that is there are times when I will send encounters at the party that are supposed to be really easy. Because when their characters are beating the crap out of this encounter and they have, like, no problem, they barely get hit, they barely take any hit points, um, uh, you know, they, they barely take any damage at all, that makes them feel great. That makes them feel awesome, like their characters, you know, are, are kicking ass and taking names and, you know, being, being heroes and being awesome. And, and I think that's really important. So, yeah, there are times when I've wanted encounters to be very challenging, and if, and if I miscalculated in some way and there weren't, I was changing things behind the screen. And again, it goes both ways. They can be too easy. They can be too hard. And sometimes I would just throw encounters at the party that were just like, here's an, here's a really easy encounter. Just, you know, have fun, beat the crap out of these guys, feel like heroes. That's, that's part of what D&D is for me. So, um, there were other times, to give you a couple more examples, there were other times when behind the screen I was saying that monsters were dying when they actually had hit points remaining. And and oftentimes it happened because I was trying to wrap up an encounter more quickly. But, you know, if a monster had a lot of hit points left or a few hit points left, somebody would hit it, they would do some damage, and I would just say, oh, you kill it, you know. Or, or sometimes I would use a more interesting description of of the death of of the, of the monster, but... Essentially, there are times when I have sometimes done that. I'm just like, I need to get this over with right now. I don't want it to go into another session, so I'm just going to say that the next person that hits this monster, it just dies. Um, so, something else that's kind of important is that when you're doing these things behind the screen, you want to try to maintain the suspension of disbelief because we all have to sus- uh, we all have to suspend our disbelief when we're watching movies and TV shows and reading books and playing D and D and other role-playing games, and you don't want it to be obvious that you're doing these things. Some DMs don't even play with the screen, and I think that's very interesting, and I know there are certain benefits to that. You know, for me, part of my ability to be a storyteller and to be a DM and to help the players feel like heroes um, is to basically keep that screen there so that I can be doing things, and they don't really know when I'm kind of fudging the numbers a little bit. And, you know, there are times when I have modified things in the moment behind the screen and players were like super super excited about it and they loved it and i wouldn't be able to do that without the screen and i'm not saying that being a dm who doesn't use the screen is bad it's not it really does have some some benefits to it as well that's just the way that i like to do it and so i always try to maintain the suspension of disbelief so they don't really know what i'm doing so I, i do think that that's that's important So um, that is all I have for this episode of Behind the Screen. And when I start doing my next homebrew campaign, which will be after Tomb of Annihilation, um, I'm going to try to basically do one of these behind the screens for, for every single episode that I do, where I will, after I do the editing for that particular episode, I will try to sit there at my desk and record a quick Behind the Screen where I say, these are the things that I was doing during the adventure. So that is my plan. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned in a couple of weeks for John's Session Zero of Tomb of Annihilation. Take care, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review anywhere this podcast can be found. Our social media links, plus additional content, can be found on our website at knightsofroleplay.com. Please tell your friends about Knights of Roleplay, an adventuring podcast, and spread the word through social media. Your help and support are greatly appreciated.